Well, first off, before I get into our message for today, let me just express to to you uh, what an honor it is to be here with you this morning. If you had asked me uh, a year ago if I would have an opportunity to preach from this pulpit, I probably would have laughed at you, uh, not, not because I wouldn't have wanted to, uh, not because I wouldn't have dreamt of doing such a thing, but because I just wouldn't have thought it could be possible. I mean, you have such a rich history here and so many gifted and wonderful speakers that have spoken from this place. I mean, you've had Billy Graham. Last week, you had one of my writing heroes, Philip Yancey, who I'll be referencing later on in my message today. I mean, in a few weeks, you're going to have Lecrae here. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got a little bit of everything. And here I am. I'm a, a small church planter in New York City of Epiphany Church, just getting started a little over a year ago, and a part-time associate pastor in Roxbury, New Jersey. And yet, Uh, I get to speak here to you and proclaim the Word of God. And what this shows me is that ultimately what's most important from this place is not the vessel, but the very Word itself. That's what ultimately matters. And my prayer as we move through Romans chapter 5 today is that you would be led to rejoice abundantly, exceedingly, in your Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for being present in our midst right now. I thank you for speaking to us, coming to where we are at. I thank you for not leaving us to our own devices to try and figure out what the purpose is for this world. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has for us today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you look back over your life, have you ever had somebody that you could actually say was your enemy? I don't mean somebody that just annoyed you or someone that you know, just got on your nerves, even somebody that you didn't care for. I mean someone who you really couldn't stand and for that matter just couldn't stand you. You were just like oil and vinegar together. There was nothing you could do to make it work. Thankfully, I can't think of too many enemies I've had in my life. I I, I haven't had that many, but I can think of one, one enemy. Granted, it goes back to fourth grade. His name was James. And James and I, for day after day after day, would go through the same pattern. I'd walk into school or go out to recess, and James would call me a name, and I would respond with some sarcastic comment, and James, who was much larger than I, would uh, proceed to get me in a headlock, get me down to the ground, and punch me until I said, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And James became my enemy all throughout junior high school. I don't remember seeing him after that, but as my enemy, I remember feeling such disdain for him. I wished that he would go away. I loathed him and avoided him at all costs. Because that's basically what happens when someone is your enemy. So it's striking me as Henry read our passage in Romans 5 
that one of the words Paul uses to describe our natural relationship to God is that word enemy. The description in our passage of humanity's natural disposition towards God is not very bright and cheery. It's not flattering. We're pictured in this passage as being at war with God, described as disobedient, ungodly enemies. Indeed, ever since the fall of man described in Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been described as at enmity with God. I think C.S. Lewis states it well when he says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that the scriptures testify that this God that humanity is at war with, who we apparently treat like an enemy by our disobedience and who we've run from, we must have peace with in order to be truly content and happy and in the place that we were made for. In fact, that's how it was before humanity's fallen to sin. So the question is, how do we get that back? How can we enemies of God, as Paul says here, find peace with God? To answer that question, Paul is going to tell us three things. Number one, how to receive peace with God. Number two, how this peace affects us. And number three, how this peace is achieved. First of all, how this peace is received. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me break that down just a bit here. First of all, the verse begins with a therefore. Now, anytime you see a therefore, yes, I'm going to do the cheesy preacher thing. You should search the surrounding context to see what it's there for. In the passage right before this one, Paul is pointing out the contrast between those who seek to be justified, saved, made righteous by God because of their works, because of their obedience, because of their own perfection or at least illusion of it, and those who are justified, saved by God simply because of faith, pointing out that long before any commands were given by God in the Old Testament to the people of Israel, Abraham, their father, was justified, saved by simple faith alone. Indeed, the passage right before this one points out that in the book of Genesis, God is said to count or reckon Abraham righteous in his sight just because he believed what God told him in his word. He then goes on to say that the same thing is true for us, writing in chapter 4, verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is an astounding, astonishing, scandalous claim made by Paul. Can it really be that simple, Paul? 
Just believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was delivered up for my transgressions and sins and raised from the dead for my justification makes God count me as if I'm perfect, as if I've never sinned, as if I'm truly justified and completely righteous in His sight. Paul's answer is a thundering yes. Now, I don't want to move past this too quickly because, frankly, this is everything. This is everything. This is the gospel. This is not Paul merely saying through faith that our sins are forgiven. Yes, he is saying that, but he is saying so much more. Here he is saying that he, you have been declared righteous through faith. Now, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, let's imagine that you owe millions and millions of dollars in credit card debt to the bank, and then one day, not as if this would ever actually happen, the bank just decides that they're going to be nice and wipe your debt completely clean. That's forgiveness. And that's amazing. But if that was all the Bible was teaching here, then the phrase, God is the God of second chances, would be quite appropriate. The idea being that now that you are debt-free spiritually, you get to start all over again. But here's the deal. If that's all the gospel proclaimed, then I gotta tell you, that's not great news. Why? Because our lives are clear testimonies that we'd use that second chance and go right back into debt again. No, this passage is teaching something more. He is teaching that our God is the God not of second chances, but a second life. If you want to get to the heart of what Paul says when he says we've been justified by faith, that righteousness is counted to us, we have to imagine that the bank not only forgives us our debt, but places billions and billions and billions of dollars into our bank account too, with the promise that in case it ever gets low, they'll replenish it. That's what we receive by faith. Not merely forgiveness, but the righteousness of God's own Son won for us so that we can stand before a perfectly righteous God. I always think of this when I come across this story from Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. Because what Romans is telling us is that God imputes something, he counts something toward us that we have not earned, that, that we don't deserve at all. In his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he talks about a policy that was developed in South Africa after the end of apartheid, where the government, rather than go after the enemies with sword in hand, instead started a panel called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with a totally different goal in mind. The rules were really simple. If a white policeman or army police officer that had persecuted so much during those past days in apartheid voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried and punished for that crime. At one hearing, a policeman named Vandebroek recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body and then turned that body on fire like a piece of meat in order to destroy evidence. 
Eight years later, this same officer, Vanderbroek, returned to the same house and sees the boy's father killing him in front of the boy's mother and the father's wife, burning him to death. And so, of course, the courtroom grew very quiet as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbroek, they said. Well, she said she wanted Vanderbroek to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial and his head down. The policeman nodded in agreement. But then she added a further request. Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. At that point, Yancey recounts in the courtroom, spontaneously people started singing Amazing Grace. And as the elderly woman made her way up to the witness stand, Vanderbroek was never able to receive the hug because he had fainted overwhelmed at what he had just received. That's what God has done for us. He has taken us enemies, declared us righteous by faith, and embraces us as sons and daughters. Now, the astute listener might be thinking, but how can God do that and maintain his justice? This just doesn't seem fair. Well, stick with me. Not just yet. We'll get there. First, Paul goes on to give us the second detail about peace, namely how this peace with God can affect our life. He writes in verse 2, through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here Paul details basically two results of life when one knows that they are at peace with God. Number one, they are able to boast or rejoice at what's coming. And number two, they're able to glory in or rejoice even now in the midst of challenges and suffering because they know God is working there too. The passage is very similar to Paul in another letter of his to the Philippians, the letter of joy, when he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The idea being presented is that when you know you're at peace with God, that Jesus truly has taken it all for you, And it makes it possible to face anything with a sense of confidence and hope. A few months ago, I was on a plane back from Seattle when we experienced the most terrifying level of turbulence I've ever been in in my life. 
I mean, I've been through turbulence before. I fly quite a bit on a regular basis, but this was so bad that we were being just lifted out of our seats, even though we had seatbelts on, and people all around me were screaming. The woman behind me was shrieking so loud, I felt my head vibrate as I was just trying to kind of get my bearings. And at one point, as we were going through this turbulence, I did start to believe this just might be it. And so I did the only thing I could do. I prayed. Now, I've got to be honest with you. At that moment, I've never been so scared in my entire life. But then as I prayed, something else happened. I prayed for deliverance for my family, for me and my family. I prayed for peace that God would give it to me as if we did go down. And suddenly, in the midst of the turbulence, in the midst of the storm, I had a calm come over me that no matter what happened, whether I went down on a fiery plane crash or whether I would make it home safely to my family because I was at peace with God, everything was going to be all right. I can't... I can't explain it to you except that that verse in Philippians about the peace of God transcending all understanding came into play. I think that's what Paul means here when he says that our having peace with God can cause us to rejoice no matter what we are facing. Uh, but some of you may still be saying in the back of your head, how is it though that God can indeed justify people that are not in fact Righteous. I mean, how can it be that he can declare us at peace with him simply by faith? How is that fair? How is it possible? Well, all right, fine. Look at verse 6, where he tells us how this peace is achieved. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good one, someone might, yeah, possibly dare to die. But God... Two of my favorite words in the entire Bible demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What this passage is saying is that God decided to take the initiative in means by which he would make peace with you. Notice the language all throughout this passage. Christ died for us while we were still powerless, not after we became powerful. While we were still ungodly, not after we became godly enough. While we were still sinners, not when we stopped sinning. And while we were still enemies, not even after we became his friends. No, God knew that what, that would never happen on our own dime and in our own time, that we wouldn't even have the capability of turning around to him. He was going to have to take the first step. He was going to have to initiate this whole thing and bring it to the end. If there's any saving, any peace that's going to happen, he's going to have to act before we could do anything to help ourselves. It turns out, God does not help those who help themselves. God only helps those who can't 
Now you say, how does he do it, Eric? Well, a couple chapters previous in chapter three, he offers the explanation. He says that God offers up his son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice to pacify his righteous judgment against sin. Let me bring it down for you. Martin Luther said it this way. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, you be Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the fruit in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly, you be the person which has committed the sins of all men. And by this means, the whole world is purged and cleansed from all sins. This is why Luther once wrote to a friend struggling with despair and with, with worry over his own sins and his own struggles. He said, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. You say, Eric, that sounds crazy. Well, listen to the apostle in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't specify which sins, so I can only conclude that that means all of them. All of them. That's how God makes enemies into friends. That's what he gives to all who believe here today. He declares to you peace. God loves you and has gone to the greatest lengths to make that certain. Let me close. I heard a story from a pastor named Ray Cortez a while back about a friend of his in Chicago. His friend had a son who was really, really a great kid all the way through most of his life until suddenly about 19, 20 years old, he just, he fell into the wrong crowd and started distancing himself from the family and he wasn't showing up to family gatherings and to birthdays and stuff like that and eventually come to find out that he's just plunged headlong into the drug culture. For like a year and a half, there is no contact with the family at all. And then one night, the phone rings late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. It's the police, and they tell him that his son is in jail, and this pastor pastor goes out and looks for his son. Shows up at the jail, gives the guard the name of his son, and the cop says, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no one here by that name. Well, the pastor figures it's a mistake, so he goes to the jail in the next town over, same thing. Nobody, nobody's there with his son's name. By this time, it's like four in the morning. He's got to preach that morning. So the, the dad decides to go to the last place that he knew his son was at in downtown Chicago. And this place was just everything you can think of as a drug house, you know, door open, mattresses splayed out on the ground, people laying around everywhere. And the pastor walks through the house, and in the back corner, he sees his son laying there sleeping And his heart just breaks. And he walks over to his son, gets down on his knees, and kisses him. And then leaves. About three months later, his son showed up back at the house. 
And then a couple weeks after that, and eventually his son got fully integrated back into the family, and the dad finally had a chance to sit down with his son and said, you know, what, son, what happened? What made you come out of all that? And the son said, you don't know, Dad? It was that night. You know that night that you got the call about me being arrested? That was a prank. One of my friends was pulling on you, and we were all laughing hysterically at you, thinking about you looking for me at the police station. But the one thing I never imagined, Dad, is that you'd ever come to the house in Chicago. And when we saw you coming down the street, we did all we could to hide, and we jumped down on the bed pretending to be asleep. And I just knew, I knew that when you found me, the first thing you'd do was kick me. I was ready for it. My body was braced for it. But you want to know what changed me, Dad? You kissed me. The Bible says that's what Jesus does for us too. Though we are deserving of the kick for our unrighteousness, he responds with a kiss of his righteousness. So to borrow Jack Miller's words, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are, but in Jesus Christ, you're far more loved than you could ever have imagined. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this good news that though we were indeed deserving of the kick, we received the kiss of adoption. Father God, help us now live lives of gratitude and appreciation and love and service to our neighbor as we give our praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.